everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and today we're digging into the analytical side of Major League Soccer with a conversation between myself and John Muller of American Soccer Analysis. John is a cleanup hitter in ASA's all-star lineup of brilliant contributors. He knows tactics, he knows data, and most importantly for today's show, he knows all about goals added, a fascinating new metric developed by ASA. What is goals added and why does it matter? Let's find out. I am here with ASA's John Muller. John, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great, or as great as you can do in uh, quarantine. <laughs> That's relatable. Um, John, I'm really excited over the course of this episode to flesh out goals added and to dig into what it is, how it works, and how it's going to impact the future of both Major League Soccer and soccer around the world. So to sort of start out, what is goals added, and how is it different from some more well-known metrics like XG or XA, which we've talked about on the show before? Yeah, so goals added, I mean, goals added is is literally the most exciting public stat out there coming in strong i like it i feel like i'm exaggerating you know asa's work product here but it is literally the best publicly available stat um and what it does is it captures the effect of every touch any kind of touch on the ball anywhere on the field captures the effect of those touches on that team's chance of scoring and its chance of conceding after the next turnover so that sounds kind of abstract but think about it on a conceptual level right What's the point of soccer? The point is to score more goals than the other team. This measures a player's contribution to goal difference. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So it's different from expected goals, though, and expected assists in in what way exactly? Keep fleshing it out for me. Sure. So expected goals measures the probability of a shot of scoring, right? Uh, it's, it's a pretty useful metric at giving us, you know, kind of a general, essentially a percentage chance if you shoot from here, under these circumstances, right, you receive the ball from a corner kick, you're heading the shot. We know some data about like the circumstances around the shot. Here's your probability of converting that chance. Goals added has a similarly sort of probabilistic approach, uh, but it will tell you, you know, if you pass uh, across the field at a 30 degree angle from this spot to this spot, and the last three passes in the sequence, uh, you know, maybe were mostly horizontal. Okay, given all of that situational context in the possession, how much did that pass across the field now help your team's chance of scoring? And also, how much did it reduce the other team's chance of scoring if you turn the ball over? Now that we have an idea of what goals added is at sort of a conceptual level, John, why is this important? Why is assigning a positive or a negative value to each on-field action? Because that's essentially what this metric is doing. Why is assigning those values important to soccer? Well, so the the most important reason I think that it's important is that it tells us what matters. So previously, essentially what we could do was we could count things that happen on the field, right? I could tell you how many passes a player had. I could tell you his pass completion percentage. I could also tell you how many tackles he had and maybe his tackle percentage. I could tell you his headers. I could tell you, uh, you know, how many passes he intercepted. I could count up all those individual events. And I could say, you know, okay, I think tackles are good. So, you know, a player who gets a lot of tackles, I want him. Or a player who gets a lot of interceptions, uh, you know, he's he's good for for me for this other situation. But what I couldn't tell you was I couldn't compare a tackle and an interception and a dribble and a pass in terms of how much they actually matter to the team in that game situation. And that's what goals added helps us to do is that we now not only have all these different categories of types of things that you can do on the soccer field, but we can compare them and and combine them 
So we can say a player who, uh, you know, has these passes and these dribbles and these tackles uh, has, has contributed a certain amount of goal difference to his team. That's what goals added is about. So we're talking about what the model can do and what goals added as a metric can do. But how does it work? How does goals added know what value to assign? And how does how does it make these complex decisions that we're still struggling as human beings to quantify with our own eyes? So the short answer is magic. <laughs> the uh, slightly shorter answer is math. Uh, but what, what essentially happens is Matthias Kulawatz, who is the guy who builds most of the models for American soccer analysis, uh, built the, the inner workings of this model. Uh, and it's based on machine learning. So it uses an algorithm called XGBoost. And so basically what we do is we take a bunch of contextual data about a possession, uh, where the ball is on the field, how the ball got there, right? Kind of how the possession has been moving, uh, how fast laterally and vertically, how long it's been since a throw in, how long it's been since a goal kick, all kinds of context to, to give, uh, the computer an idea of what's been happening in this possession. We feed it into this machine learning thing. The machine learning thing does a bunch of math, and then it spits out probabilities. Uh, and that all sounds like, you know, kind of woo-woo, right? And it, it essentially is. But you actually participated in a project that I did where we took this to video and we said, you know, are those, these probabilities that this algorithm is, is telling us, do they make sense with what we're seeing on the field? Uh, in a particular Sounders game where we watched Nico Ladero. And I think that what we saw there was that actually the probabilities that the algorithm tells us do sort of correspond to what we see on the field. And that was pretty exciting. You know, for our listeners, what John did was have a number of different analysts and people who watch a lot of soccer games, watch Nico Ladero specifically in one game against the New England Revolution and write down a number of actions that we all thought was either good or bad. No in the middle, just on one end of the spectrum or the other. ASA then went through and judged those attributes and those descriptions that we came up with against the model. And that the fact that those things correlated at at least some level, I think, is fascinating. That's right. Yeah. So so what we were doing essentially was seeing, you know, the plays that people think are good. Does the model think they're good? The plays that people think are bad. Does the model dislike those? And we did see that correlation. Uh, it was actually pretty strong and I was impressed by that. But then we went even deeper and we drilled down on individual plays and we tried to understand uh, what it was that the model liked about certain plays. And, you know, were the, the factors that were influencing the algorithm in certain situations, did those sort of correspond to what our analysts saw on the field and what we liked about Seattle's situation, uh, you know, on that play? And the fact that these these had some relation between the human element and and the model is fascinating because I think so much of the discussion around analytics in soccer, especially, but in all sports, is that debate between the eye test and between the models or between the math and the numbers. There's this debate as if these these two items can't be reconciled together in some way. And I appreciate that this model and this exercise that you went through, John, sort of chiseled away at that theory. Yeah, I think there's probably a misconception that, you know, stats people don't watch soccer or don't don't <laughs> like, you know, think about how the game actually works because we're too busy staring at our spreadsheets. And at least at, at ASA, at American Soccer Analysis, that's just not true. Uh, and one of the things that I love about Goals Added is that we spent literal months, uh, you know, arguing about little, just tiny details of, of this model and whether they made sense with how we understood the game and how we could, you know, bring our what 
the modelers called domain knowledge, how we can bring our understanding of the sport to bear to make this model smarter and better than others that we had seen. Talking about the time that was spent before this model was actually dropped and the content on ASA was rolled out, what was that process like? What went into creating this model and refining the idea to actually make it into a, a work in progress or, or somewhat of a finished product? Yeah, so our process is essentially uh, Matthias, who, who does the modeling, uh, makes something brilliant. And then we all kibitz for, you know, a week or so. And then Matthias goes back and takes our feedback and does something brilliant again. Uh, in this case, he did like the basic modeling, uh, the, you know, all the, the machine learning process that I just described to you was essentially finalized, uh, back in like December. But we didn't really like the results. We, you know, we kind of looked at, you know, we started by looking at, okay, we've got this mysterious black box machine learning model. It's telling us that these players are good, but, you know, we all watch MLS pretty closely. Are these players actually good? And at first, that wasn't really the case. Uh, so then what we did was try to figure out, like, okay, what's going on here? Why, why is it telling us, for example, that Nico Ladero is a below average player? Uh, why do the attacking mids, you know, not make sense? Uh, why is it telling us that bad attacking mids are good and vice versa? Uh, and, and so like that kind of discussion as high level as it is can then help us to drill down on particular features of the model. And we wound up, for example, in this case, reassessing the way that the model handled turnovers, uh, because it turned out that it was penalizing guys too much, uh, for turning the ball over. And that was hurting high volume players, uh, like Ladero or Max Morales or Alejandro Pozuelo. Uh, and, and when we changed the way that the model handled turnovers, it, gave us player rankings that made more sense. And so kind of that consistent like quality check and checking what the math is doing against our understanding of the game is how we sort of got to a, a better final product. Or I shouldn't even say final product. I should say, you know, this version, because we're already looking ahead at how we can make this thing better. And we'll get to that a little bit later on. But I want to focus on something that you said there just a second ago with turnovers. How do you weigh the risk reward assessment that's sort of an inherent part of soccer, right? Because I might try to play a through ball um, in behind the back line, which would be a much more difficult pass to complete and therefore has a higher likelihood of being cut out and acting as a turnover. I might I might attempt that pass that has a, a really high reward value, but also high risk versus a pass that's like four yards over to another defender standing right next to me. How do you decide or how did you guys decide on what value to give to those things and how to decide what plays are worth the risk and which ones aren't? Yeah, so I, I've been talking about this in terms of like the team's decisions behind the model, but we really don't want this to be discretionary, right? We want this to be mathematical and, and the model does as much as possible. That is the, the, the machine learning algorithm tells us what situation is worth how much. What we do is look at what the model is telling us and say, does this make sense? And if not, why not? So in the case of turnovers, you sort of have this here's here's where kind of discretion is brought to bear on this math. Like I said, the 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 model looks at two possessions, right? It looks at the chance of scoring for the team that's on the ball. It also looks at the team that's on the ball, what chance they have of conceding if they turn the ball over. You know, if team A gives the ball back to team B, how likely is team B to score on the next possession? Uh, but when you have a two possession metric like that, right, and you have a turnover, then what we wound up doing was looking across three possessions. So you've got your first possession, you've got your second possession after the turnover, but then you've also got a third possession after that. Uh, man, this is going to get really abstruse. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, back to our through ball example. 
when I attempt a through ball, I know that I'm probably more likely than not to turn the ball over, right? If, especially if I'm in the final third. And so a metric that only looks at, did I increase my team's chance of scoring uh, and reduce the other team's chance of conceding by attempting this through ball that's probably not going to come off is going to say most of the time that no, and I'm an idiot for trying to do it because I've reduced my team's chance of scoring on that possession to zero. And I've probably increased the other team's chance of scoring now on the possession that they're now starting. So if we're just looking at those first two possessions, that's not going to work. Uh, it's it's going to say, you know, you screwed up by attempting this through ball, but that's not true. When I attempt that through ball, I attempt it because I know that even if that pass isn't completed, my team is going to then counter press, right? And they're going to probably force the other team to boot the ball long because they're in their box now. They just received the ball. They're not structured. Uh, and they're just going to try to clear it out. My team's probably going to recover the ball in the attacking half, and then they're going to attack again. So that's actually a good situation for my team across three possessions. And I know that when I attempt the through ball, and that's why I do it. So when we fixed turnovers, like I was talking about earlier, what we did was take it from that two-possession window and stretch it across three possessions to include what's going to happen in the possession after that so that we more accurately reflect uh, how players think about risk-reward when they're attempting that through ball. Following along with that three-possession line of thinking, does that mean that there's some statistical validation for, for the tactic that's sort of come into vogue recently? Or maybe it's happened you know, long ago. Soccer is cyclical after all. But the idea of just kicking the ball long and, and not really having an idea of what you're going to do with it, but knowing for a fact that once the other team recovers the ball, that you're going to counterpress high up the field and then just win the ball and have that be essentially a stand-in for passing in any sort of logical or methodical manner. So I don't know if I would go so far as to call it statistical proof, but I will say that the model likes some very field position-y things of the kind of thing that you were just talking about. Uh, and in MLS, we have a very clear example of a team that plays this way. The New York Red Bulls, anytime they have the ball in their own half, they're basically just going to boot it long, right? They want to be playing a high-pressing game, and they would much rather boot it long and then try to win second balls and then try to counter-press high uh, so that they can constantly keep the game in their opponent's own half. Some possession value models, possession value models is kind of like the generic term for things like goals added. There are a few other comparable models and we can kind of lump them together under this heading. Possession value models don't always like that, uh, that kind of field possession game. But goals added, because of that three possession window that we apply to turnovers, really does like that field possession game. And that's a really interesting thing for me to think about. Because we all saw how good the Red Bulls were in 2018 playing this style, you know, kind of to the extreme. And at least in MLS, it's it's highly effective if done right, like the Red Bulls did it. Uh, and it, and so I think it's cool that this, you know, stats model actually likes that style of play. At the same time, you know, I'm an NYCFC fan. I like possession games. You know, I grew up watching Barcelona. So I don't want my soccer team to be booting the ball away in midfield, uh, you know, I would rather watch them try to pass their way through midfield. And, uh, you know, I, I think that there are ways that we can use goals added to compare those approaches. But uh, that's that's going to take kind of deeper analysis than what we've done so far in just constructing the initial model. Hey, this is producer Daryl jumping in with an ad read. But if I'm honest, I haven't had to do a lot of producing on this show because Joseph Lowry is a very talented man. Today's episode is sponsored by Roman, R-O-M-A-N. And if you're dealing with erectile dysfunction, 
then it's very important that you know two things. One, don't be embarrassed. Two, you can do something about it. I guess it's three things. Three, our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state from the comfort of home to get you the treatment you need. You just grab your phone or computer, you complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a US licensed physician within 24 hours. If the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or you want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel any time. So if you're struggling with ED, go to getroman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's getroman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. All right, let's get back to Joe and John. So besides in the future, hopefully looking at that comparison between playing styles, John, what can teams actually do with goals added? What sorts of practical applications are there for this metric in terms of how it can help teams better themselves? Oh, man, a lot, I hope. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're kind of an exciting moment at an exciting moment right now because we've just introduced this like amazing new tool and really we haven't gotten to use it right all of our energy has been dedicated to like you know putting this thing together and making sure that it makes sense uh so just today actually uh elliot mckinley who does gorgeous uh data visualizations uh for american soccer analysis tweeted past sonars, which maybe some of your listeners have seen on Twitter by now, uh, maybe some haven't. What past sonars are is it shows kind of a in, a in a circle, it shows bars for how frequent a team passes in each direction. It's going to be really hard to describe this visually. Can you maybe help me out in like describing what this thing looks like? Absolutely. It's, it's a radar. It's a circular thing with uh, lines extending from it that illustrates distance and, and uh, frequency of a pass. That's right. So the original ones, the length of each section of this circle, some sections were longer than others. And that shows the frequency of how, how often a team or a player passed at that particular angle, right? That sliver of the circle. Uh, and then the color of that sliver uh, in the original version showed distance of the pass. So we could get, you know, kind of some some passing behaviors from that. But then what Elliot did today was he made the color of these slivers represent goals added instead of distance of the pass. Uh, and so then we could see not just like our teams passing long or short in this direction, but are they creating value from these passes? And when we looked at different teams, like he he ran uh, LAFC first, we saw that they were creating a ton of value from central through balls, uh, especially in zone 14 and the zone right behind it, that is at the top of the box and uh, right behind that in the, in the central third of the field. They were creating a ton of value right up the middle, which anybody who's watched LAFC closely knows this is a characteristic of their team, right? They play the ball wide, then they square it into zone 14, and then they look for that immediate through ball. Uh, and it's cool that we can use goals added to capture that that play style. So there's some value then. So there's some value then in terms of opposition scouting, right? Maybe a team could look at that illustration from Elliot and say, okay, this is clearly what LAFC does. This is what they like to do. How are we going to adapt and stop it? Is is there some value in that sense? Yeah. So, so you know, analytics does a couple things uh, for soccer teams. And, and one of the things that you can use it for is prepping for the opposition. 
if I were using goals added as part of my opposition prep, I would probably do something like what I just described where, you know, I take a standard viz, uh, a standard visualization, throw some goals added into it, see where, where teams are creating value. And when I notice that, you know, my opponent in this case, LEFC has these particular distinctive characteristics. Then I go to video and I try to capture situations. So like right after Elliot ran this viz, I went to Y scout. I watched, you know, 10 minutes LAFC against uh, Philadelphia, their last game before quarantine. And I pulled like a dozen examples of this exact pattern that I'm just describing uh, from the video that I knew to look for because we had used the stats uh, in the first place. So that's that's an example of how a club might use this kind of thing in opposition prep. But I think probably the more common way that analytics teams uh, or analytics, you know, adds value for clubs is in scouting. And that may be where goals added is, is the most useful. Okay, so why don't you elaborate a little bit more on that? How how does this metric help scouting and help make it more efficient? Yeah, so because goals added captures every touch anywhere on the field and because it measures every touch in a standard goal unit, we can essentially tell you how much a player is contributing on the ball for everything that they do, right? And then we can compare a player to every other player at his position and tell you, is he making more of a difference for his team on the ball than, you know, other midfielders or other wingers? And the lists that we've gotten back from, you know, just simply doing that, right? Normalizing goals added by position and pumping out top 10 lists of wingers, top 10 lists of midfielders, that kind of thing is sort of your first order screen, your filter uh, for scouting. I would then, you know, if I were doing this in some league that I've never watched, I'm an MLS team that has, you know, data for the Paraguayan league, but I need to know who's good there. And I can't send a bunch of scouts, uh, you know, down to watch a bunch of Paraguayan league games. So, but I can use goals added to measure every touch that every player has done in Paraguay in the last three years. And I can tell you who the top 10 midfielders are. I can also use goals added to tell you what their best games are and what their worst games are. And then I can give my scout a video monitor and, you know, within half an hour, they've watched clips from the best games and the worst games. And they can tell you more about what makes this player good and what makes this player, uh, you know, what this player's areas to grow are. That's fascinating. So in theory, we could and maybe even should see MLS teams being a little bit smarter with both their money that they spend on some of these players getting better bang for their buck and just their scouting overall if they're properly applying this metric. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that traditionally, right, if you were doing the same thing, you might have just looked at, OK, who scored the most goals in Paraguay if I'm looking for an attacker for midfielders that gets a lot trickier because what stats do you look at? You know, you're not going to look at pass counts and pass percentages and think that's going to tell you who the best midfielders are. Goals added does a much better job, I think, of, of capturing real contributions. Uh, and that first level data screen saves you so much time uh, and effort in terms of video scouting and in-person scouting. And that's where a lot of teams have seen value in analytics so far in soccer. And especially for a lot of teams with smaller analysis departments. I mean, this is something that Elliot and I talked about when he was on the show a while back. Teams still are, are figuring out what resources to use and how much money to allocate to analysis for teams on small budgets, which is probably all of them. Why not use something like this to cut down on the time, to cut down on the manpower and make your process better in general? 
And honestly, for teams with big budgets too, like Manchester United has literally hundreds of scouts all over the world, which is just an insane thing to do. Uh, and they shouldn't be doing it, but you know, that's Manchester United for you. Uh, smarter clubs like Liverpool, Liverpool has had a model similar to goals added for years and they've used it in scouting. And anybody who's watched the Premier League in the last few years can tell you just how good their scouting has been and how successful all their signings have been. And that's in part because they're making the process much more efficient by, you know, narrowing with stats before they go to video uh, or, or even worse, you know, send highly paid scouts out to games. <laughs> Heaven forbid we actually watch soccer in person. No, absolutely not. <laughs> so, John, you mentioned the idea of having this list of players generated for teams, but you guys at ASA put together lists of players actually in Major League Soccer that have the highest number of goals added, normalized over the course of a season at each position. So I, I kind of want to go through some of those players, maybe one or two guys at a few different spots that you think stand out all compared to the rest or that stand out in some way for a reason that maybe we wouldn't expect. Yeah, absolutely. Did, did you have questions about particular players or you want to just kind of talk through? I mean, let's just go. Let's go back to front. First of all, I do have a question starting in the back. How does yeah. this how does this factor into the goalkeeper position? Is this more of an outfield statistic as of now? Because it seems like the things that this model is measuring certainly have more data points for outfield players. Yeah, so we've basically punted goalkeepers down the road. We're not going to deal with them yet. Um, although goals added does measure all the things that they do except for shot stopping, uh, and it measures them in, in mostly useful ways. You know, it can tell us things about their claims, about their, uh, their passing, but we didn't really want to decide just yet how we were going to handle shot stopping, uh, for technical reasons that I won't bore you with, but for <laughs> now it's an outfield player stat. Okay. Fair enough. So why don't we start at center back? Who are some of the center backs in MLS that goals added really likes? Oh, man, you're starting with my least favorite position. Oh, okay, uh, you're out, John. I'm sorry. You got to go. Um, that is that is slander <laughs> that we will not accept. No, 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 no. It's, it's not that I don't love center backs. It's that I don't love the way that the model handles center backs. Ah, I see. Okay, well, well, why don't you like how it handles center backs then? Oh, man, you want to go into the defense thing now or you want to <laughs> go to the rankings and then come back to the defense thing? I think let's talk why this model struggles to to analyze defensive actions. Okay, so the way that the model currently handles defensive actions is it credits the defensive player uh, with stopping the attack, right? Whoever does the action that stops the attack, whoever makes the tackle, whoever intercepts the ball, clears it, heads it, whatever, that person gets the credit for the change in game situation that results. Now, the problem with this is if you are in your own six yard box and you, you know, make a headed clearance, you have just stopped a really dangerous attack, right? Because if the other team gets the ball there in the six yard box, you know, just the fact that they've already gotten to a situation where they're, you know, clearing it across the face or crossing it across the face of your goal means they probably got a really high value possession, a high value situation where they're likely to score and you're not likely to score in your next possession, which means goals added is going to really like that situation. And it's going to give you a lot of credit uh, for clearing the ball out of your box. The problem is, you know, just on a conceptual level, you don't want to be the team that's constantly clearing it out of your own box, right? You want to be the team that's that's making defensive stops as high up the field as possible. That's hopefully keeping it in, in the opposition's half. And if you're breaking up uh, opposition attacks high up the field, those attacks are less valuable. And so you're going to get less credit for what's objectively a better defensive stop than one that's done, you know, really deep. So to my mind, at least, 
the way that the model currently handles uh, defense and, and allocates credit for defense is backwards. Now, that said, like it is justifiable the way that it handles defense. And, you know, there are situations where you absolutely should credit the, the person who's making that defensive stop for breaking up a dangerous attack in their own box. But when we look at our at our ranked defenders, you know, you've got center backs like Frederick Briant, who's, you know, he's, he's a decent defender. But the reason that he's in the top five of right center backs is that he plays for D.C. United, who's just a terrible team and defends in their own box all the time. And Briant is constantly breaking up high value attacks just by virtue of the way that his team plays. Now, that said, there, there are other ways that defenders can create value that I think are, to my mind, more legitimate. Uh, like Eddie Segura uh, creates a lot of value through passing because he plays for LAFC and that's what they do. Uh, Jack Elliott, I think I would have to go back and, and check. It's been a while since I watched the union, but I think Elliott is one of those center backs who's creating a lot of value by uh, getting on the end of corner kicks at the attacking end. And, you know, that's another way that center backs can create value. Uh, so we've got kind of different types, right? Different ways that, that center backs can create value under the goals added model. And right now I'm suspicious of the defensive piece. And so just to flesh this out a little bit more, when looking at a specific center back, you just talked about Elliot potentially getting on the end of corners and Eddie Segura with this passing. I assume with this model, you would be able to go in and dig a little bit deeper and see where what specific categories the value is coming from, right? We wouldn't have to guess from watching. We would be able to just one layer deeper and find out where the value is actually from. That's right. And uh, Elliot McKinley has created these uh, wheels that show how much above or below average a player is at six different kind of categories of touches. We've got shooting, receiving, uh, which we should talk about, passing, dribbling, fouling, uh, and, and defending, interrupting. And so just by looking at this wheel, you can see whether a player is creating most of his value by passing or most of his value by breaking up opponent possessions or by some other way. Uh, so that can help us to get a sense of the player's style and where they're adding value. So we can talk about receiving. I want to finish out the defense first. Looking at fullbacks, John, what are some names at those spots that have a high high number of goals added? Uh, well, I, I guess we should start with Anton Tinnerholm because he plays for NYCFC. <laughs> and naturally, that makes him uh, the best. Right. No, he, he really is the highest uh, above average uh, fullback in the league last season in 2019. And I think that part of that is because he was playing uh, as a wingback for at least half the year in the sort of 3-4-3, 3-4-2-1 system that Dilma implemented partway through the year, which allowed him to get upfield a little bit more and get into the box a little bit more. And uh, that's where, if you're good, you can really stand out from your peers because you can turn kind of a, a pretty high value situation into a really high value situation really fast if you're working on the attacking end. Uh, and so Ronald Macharita on the other side for NYCFC also pops up in the top five left side fullbacks. But then you've got Ryan Hollingshead for FC Dallas, uh, another good passing fullback. Uh, this is all off the top of my head, by the way. I, I haven't pulled up the viz, so feel free to remind me if there are any names that you want to talk about here. <laughs> Color me impressed. I'm just I'm impressed that you've made it this far without actually looking at it. So let's see. I think Romain Metanier for uh, Minnesota is, is on there. He's a guy who really pops for progressive passing. Uh, he's, he's an aggressive passer, and that's you know one way to help your team. I'm trying to think if we have any kind of more defensive fullbacks who, who stood out. I think to my mind, most of the fullbacks on that list are, are ones that typically attack higher up the field, which speaks to your, your take about the defensive struggles that this model sometimes has difficulty capturing. 
Yeah, I, I think that that's definitely a factor. I, I'm a little leery of using kind of overall goals added values for defenders for, for exactly that reason. I do think that, you know, we can look at passer rankings for fullbacks and those are totally legitimate. We can look at, uh, you know, how they're creating value by receiving and shooting and, uh, and dribbling players. Like all those things are fine. I'm just, I'm not sure about the interrupting piece right now. Fair enough. Hey, this is Daryl jumping in to let you know that today's show is sponsored by Sunday Scaries. Sunday Scaries are specially formulated CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12. They're super consumable and easy to take on the go. These specially formulated CBD products can help you in all sorts of ways. They can help you relax. They can help you stay composed. They can help you concentrate on what matters. As I understand it, Sunday Scaries refers to late Sunday night and you're getting a bit tense because you're going to work on Monday morning. But I'm pretty sure you can take Sunday Scaries any day of the week. Sunday Scaries also recently launched Cabin Scaries to promote social distancing and responsible isolation. A portion of sales will be donated to BEAP, BEEP, the Bartender Emergency Assistance Programme to help displaced hospitality workers. Get 25% off your first order with the code SOCCER at sundayscaries.com. That's 25% off your first order at sundayscaries.com and enter the code SOCCER where it asks for a coupon on the checkout page. Find out what product might be best for you. So go to sundayscaries.com and use code SOCCER. Okay, I'll return you to Joe and John talking about goals added. And here's my prediction. I'll bet you that Joe is about to ask John which midfielders perform well in the goals added metric. Just my guess. Just my guess. Okay, moving up a little higher in midfield. Defensive midfielders, central midfielders, attacking midfielders. Just hit me with a couple guys that that have performed really well in this metric so that we can get a a concept of how these players stand up to the math. Oh, God. uh, Every LFC player. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, obviously, Atuesta. I mean, I think anybody would tell you he was the best defensive mid last season. Uh, K and Blessing are like one and two for central midfielders, you know, very similar style for, for LAFC. Um, but moving out of them, the, the attacking mid list, I think, is still a little bit at least unexpected. Uh, Darren Contero uh, is the number one attacking mid in 2019, and Minnesota kind of got fed up with him and let him go to, go to Houston. Uh, they may have gotten a deal there. It'll be interesting to see, you know, whenever soccer starts back up. Um, Kaku, I think maybe was second for attacking mids, which, you know, makes sense. He's, he's been a very good player for the Red Bulls. Maxi Morales, obviously great player. Um, the most interesting attacking mid to me was Diego Rubio. And I try very hard not to watch the Colorado Rapids. So I'd be interested (laughs) to hear your take on what Rubio has been doing right for them and why he's popping up on this list. I mean, it's a great question, right? I think Robin Frazier does have this Colorado team doing a lot of nice things with the ball. But my question, actually, in this, I'm not going to answer your question, John. I'm just going to ask more questions because that's <laughs> that's soccer and that's what I do. Um, it's interesting to me because I don't think Rubio's really found a spot. And so I think it's interesting that he pops up here as both an attacking midfielder and as one who's had clearly a lot of promising attacking moments as well. So I don't have an answer for you, like I said, but I, I think it's something to dig into more. Yeah, and and, you know, there's this quote that, I use a lot. and By now, I think everybody at ASA has probably picked it up. But Bill James uh, once said that if you've got a stat, a, a metric, and four out of five times it's telling you what you already know, what the eye test is telling you, but then one out of five times it's surprising you, 
then you probably got a good stat. And in this case, I think Diego Rubio is that that one out of five guys where you want to say, okay, well, this metric is generally working, uh, but we've got this one surprising guy. Let's go to the tape now and, and try to figure out what he's been doing well that uh, that the stat is picking up on. But you, you, you talked about him not having a set place on the field, and we're kind of fudging with positions uh, in ways that may not be worth going into here. But I will say that we normalize every player's uh, every appearance by the position that that player was playing in during that game. So even if Rubio wasn't an attacking mid in every Rapids game, uh, he's normalized against forwards when he plays as a forward and against midfielders when he plays as a midfielder. Uh, so we don't have that problem. But then we do have the problem at the end of the season where if we want to make a best 11, we have to say, okay, well, what position did you play the most? Well, okay, fine. You're an attacking midfielder for our purposes here. I think no matter what you guys decide as far as creating a best 11 at the end of the year, it will be more accurate and more comprehensive than Major League Soccer's actual best 11. <laughs> so I wouldn't fret too much about that. I mean, two years ago, was it? Yeah, I think, I think it was 2018. Uh, Opta did this best 11, and I have no idea how they generate their best. Uh, they essentially like pick one random stat for each position and just like, <laughs> kind of throw Like they said, Nuhutulo or Tolo with uh, Seattle was the best uh, fullback in MLS and then like two weeks later the Guardian picked up on that and like put him on a list of like hot prospects for Europe to scout and said you know he was worth like I don't know, five or ten million dollars just some absurd amount of money and you know then of course he was playing for Tacoma Defiance the next season <laughs> That did escalate quickly. Um, John, to sort of round out our, our players here, first, I do want to touch on what you mentioned earlier, receiving and the value of receptions. And I also hope that you'll be able to tie in the difficulties with lacking tracking data and, and not being able to look at off-ball actions. So I'm counting on you to kind of weave receptions and off-ball actions together because I think that applies especially to the forward group. Oh, man, this is this is my favorite part of the model to talk about. Uh, and this is Teoto football. Uh this was his baby, and if you guys don't follow Teodal on Twitter, you should. He's he's brilliant. Um, and what he says, you know, when he when he makes the what he calls his political speech for receiving is, if you've got a model that's giving all the credit for a pass to the passer, so that every passer all the way up and up the chain up the field is getting all the credit for that pass, and then the forward at the end of the move is just credited with turning that pass into a shot. You're not describing soccer with that model because that's not what forwards do. Forwards are not just a stationary cog that turns a pass into a shot. Forwards are constantly moving. Uh, they're constantly, you know, running channels. They're constantly, uh, you know, pulling center backs in, in different directions and then maybe uh, dragging back so that they can receive a pass in a high value area. And that's where forwards create value. Like one of the things that we've learned from expected goals is that. Every pro converts shots at more or less the same rate. Like it's it's not that important whether you're a quote unquote good finisher. It is very important if you you know if you move like Erling Haaland for example for Borussia Dortmund. He's so so good at dragging center backs out of position and popping up in unexpected areas, but getting uh, you know around their their shoulder into areas where they can't see. And so this is all just a long winded way of saying that receiving matters, right? The movements that you do to get on the receiving end of a pass are just as valuable as the skills that go into placing and waiting a pass. Uh, so both players on either end of the pass are creating value. And what we realized during the development of goals added was that if we wanted this model to be really good, especially really good at like ranking players for what they're contributing to their teams, 
we needed to find a way to capture that receiving value as well as the passing value. Now, the way that we did this was, uh, well, it's, it's both something that's dear to me because I contributed to it, uh, but also admittedly one of the most arbitrary parts of the model. Uh, we said, okay, well, we can, we can split the weight uh, or uh, the worth, right, the value of this pass. We can give half of it to the passer and half of it to the receiver. And we can just do a 50-50 split anywhere on the field in any situation. Or what I argued for and what we ultimately adopted was we can use our expected passing model to determine how much credit should go to the passer and how much to the receiver so that for hard passes, passes that are less likely to be completed, um, more of the value is going to go to the receiver. And for easy passes, more of the value is going to go to the passer. And that works out in most situations, I think, maybe not at all. But for example, uh, a back pass is going to be neutral or maybe even a negative goals added value pass, right? Because you're making your team situation worse. Generally, you're taking it away from the direction that you want the ball to be going. Uh, and so if we gave all of the negative goals added from a back pass, uh, or, or if we split that half and half between the passer and the receiver, center backs in particular would just be getting drilled, right? Because they're constantly like showing to receive negative passes. Uh, but that's not their fault. They're not doing anything wrong. Well, you, you might say that they are because you would want them to be, you know, running up field and, <laughs> and popping up in the midfield and whatnot. But typically, like, a center back should, should stay back and, and receive those back passes. And so we're going to, because that's an easy pass to complete, the expected passing model is going to say that's like, you know, 90, 95% likely to be completed, which means the passer is going to receive 90 or 95% of the goals added value of that pass, which means 90 or 95% of that negative value is going to the passer who couldn't find a forward option uh, and so had to make his team's situation worse by passing back to the center back. That's fascinating. So you guys did find a way, at least, uh, again, this is all a work in progress, but you found a way to sort of split the value between the passer and the receiver. And that is something that, to my knowledge, at least hasn't been done before. That's right. Yeah, I think that most of these possession value models had been giving all of the value for a pass to a passer. And that created problems, especially for strikers, because they just couldn't figure out how to value strikers, right? Like if, if you're not crediting them for all the work they do to receive the ball in a good position, then what do you credit them for? And so the answer for some models has been, well, we're going to credit them for essentially how much they exceed their expected goals by. And the problem with that is that it's mostly just noise for the reason that I already said, like everybody finishes at more or less the same rate over enough time. Uh, even a guy like Cristiano Ronaldo is going to finish, you know, his goals and his expected goals are basically even. Uh, and so in seasons where he happened to exceed his expected goals, the model might tell you, hey, Cristiano Ronaldo is a really good striker. And then in seasons where he, you know, scored slightly fewer goals than he had expected goals, it's going to tell you he's a terrible player. And sure enough, that's what happened with one of these comparable models. And we saw British tabloids looking at, at the results of this model and saying, well, Lionel Messi is twice as good a player as Cristiano Ronaldo's scientists claim, which is, you know, well, maybe he is, but that's not why. <laughs> uh, and, and so showing that, that Ronaldo was adding value by receiving balls in the box uh, helps to produce uh, more realistic numbers, I should say, where, where Messi and Ronaldo are kind of neck and neck in their primes. Um, even though they're very different styles of player, 
We're crediting Messi, you know, with his passing and receiving. We're crediting Ronaldo with his receiving and his dribbling. And they're both creating comparable value uh, for their teams. And like Elliot talked about when he was on the show, I think our understanding of forwards and of all players really will develop as tracking data becomes more publicly available. But at least having this addition of reception into the model, I think, is is really helpful. And it does give us a better, more complete picture of who the better forwards are in Major League Soccer and around the world. So, John, to sort of close us out, hit us with a couple names that are on sort of the top of the wings and of the forward list for the goals added. Yeah, so let's see. Uh, obviously, Carlos Vela and Zlatan Ibrahimovic uh, were the best players in MLS last season. And sure enough, they're the best players by goals added as well. I like that because, uh, you know, Zlatan is, is a player who created a ton of value with his receiving uh, in every phase of the game for the Galaxy. Like their plan was always just pass the ball to Zlatan wherever you are. Uh, and so a model that that scores receiving properly is going to capture that and ours did uh vela obviously is is passing and receiving you know they're they're the i guess the best analogs we have in mls to prime messi and ronaldo they're different styles of player but who are both creating comparable uh extremely high values for their team and then on the other side we had uh sebastian blanco was the highest value left winger in the league last season and that was kind of a fun one because there aren't a ton of conventional stats that are going to show you hey he's he's actually an incredibly valuable player, possibly even more important to the Timbers than Diego Valeri was last season, uh, which, uh, I don't know, I'm probably going to get hate mail from fans <laughs> now. But the reason that he's that he is so valuable uh, is that he was helping, uh, I, th- I think, and I don't watch a ton of Timbers games, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but he was helping them in transition a lot. He was helping uh, with progressive passes that moved the ball upfield quickly, uh, he was showing in in situations where he could turn kind of a low value possession, a low value situation in Portland's half into a, a high value attacking situation very quickly. Uh, and so I like the goals added captures that about him, even if he's not scoring a ton of goals. John, I think we accomplished what we set out to do. I think we fleshed out goals added. We've we've talked about what it is, how it works, and how it's going to impact the future of MLS. Thanks so much for joining me. I learned a lot, and I'm confident that our listeners will learn a lot too. Thanks for having me.